0: Today we're going to talk about authentic manhood, and what does it really mean to be an authentic man. And I want to go ahead and just plug, and I'm going to kind of hit this throughout the entire service today. Uh, We at Liberty Church are really blessed. We have an amazing men's ministry here at Liberty uh, that is called Band of Brothers, uh, which is we call it Bob for short, right? So our Band of Brothers men's ministry here at Liberty is an amazing group of men that come together for the purpose of glorifying God, building the kingdom, becoming better men. And uh, we're really excited about what God is doing through our men's ministries. There's a lot of things that happen. Uh, As a result of that, we have men's small groups uh, through which we go through what's called the Quest study, and we're going to pull some truths out of that study today as I kind of give you a definition of manhood uh, in just a few moments. But uh, it really is a tremendous study through our men's small groups, through our men's outreach ministries, going out in the community, uh, doing service projects, helping those in need, and just men's fellowships, bringing guys together as Iron Sharpens iron, great things really do begin to happen. And so I want to encourage you as a man, uh, if you're here today, if you are not connected to our Band of Brothers ministry here at Liberty Church, immediately after service, out the door to my left, to the left, uh, is our Band of Brothers booth. uh, And uh, Chris Johnson, who is the director, head of that ministry for us, he'll be out there. He'll get some information, name, phone number, email from you, and get you connected uh, to be a part of what God is doing through our men's ministry. Now today, uh, I want to just kind of jump in, because what we're going to do today is We're going to give you a definition of manhood in just a moment. And we kind of borrow that from our authentic manhood curriculum. Uh, But just yesterday, let me just share this with you, and we're going to kind of jump into our message. Just yesterday, I received a text message from a, a local man in our community. And he said, Pastor Keith, he said, next month I'm going to be speaking at a men's ministry meeting to a group of men. And he said, I wanted to ask 10 different pastors what they felt like the greatest need for men in America today. Would be. And when I read that text, I thought, man, that answer is really easy because it's exactly the message I'm going to be preaching today. And I believe, above all things, what men need is a clear definition of manhood. An understanding of what does it really mean to be a man after God's own heart and be an authentic man so we can begin to live the life that God has called us to live. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of controversy. There's a lot of chaos that unfortunately surrounds what it really means to be a man in today's culture. And I believe the one thing that would empower our nation the greatest would be for men to grab hold of a solid biblical definition of what does it really mean. I to be a man. Now, for all you ladies and young people that are here today and you're thinking, oh my gosh, are you even going to talk to me today? All this is going to be about the men. Well, let me just say this to you. The truth of God is the truth of God. And so today, as we apply the truth, we're going to talk specifically toward our men today, but you ladies are going to understand something and young people like that truth is truth. Amen? And the truth sets people free. And you're going to learn some things today, I believe, uh, not just as a man, but for you ladies and young people, that if you'll grab hold of it this morning will radically change your life. So, look at that first point this morning on your outline. I want to just start out by making this statement. A real man, number one, I want you to see this, isn't a perfect man. A real man isn't a perfect man. He is an on-purpose man. A real man isn't a perfect man. He is an on-purpose man purpose man, and he is the kind of man that God delights in. Let's just be real honest for a second today. The reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, man, we understand something. Our wives don't expect us to be perfect. Our children don't expect us to be perfect. Our community and our culture really doesn't even expect us to be perfect. And the reality is, is none of us could be anyway. Amen? We've all missed the race on that one, right? If the goal of manhood is perfection, I'm disqualified. Because how many of you know you can't be perfect if you sin once? So I'm already out of the race. So if the goal of manhood is to be a perfect man, I'm disqualified. And guess what, guys? I don't know everyone that well, but I can be assured of this one thing. You are too, right? There's only been one perfect man. They nailed him to a cross. He rose again on the third day, paid the price for the redemption and salvation of all humanity. But I want you to recognize something today. The goal is not to be perfect men. The goal is to be on-purpose men. God wants us to be on-purpose, and we can be on-purpose men. We can be men that live our lives on purpose for the glory of God. And I want you to look with me in Acts chapter 13. Because I want you to see something today. I want you to see that not only does our world not expect it, I don't believe God expects you to be a perfect, perfect man. I believe God expects us to be on purpose men. Look what Acts 13, says. It says, but God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, and so this is God's testimony of David. God removed Saul, replaced him with King David, and this is what God says about David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart." God says of David, I found a man after my own heart. And man, you're like, man, that's awesome. I hear guys talk about I want to be a man after God's own heart. I want to be a man after God's own heart. What does that really look like? What does that really mean? Well, God actually qualifies that statement with the next part of that verse. Look what he says. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. So what is a man after God's own heart? He's a man that does what God wants him to. To do. And if you know anything about the Bible and you know anything about King David, you know absolutely David was not a perfect man. As a matter of fact, David would actually be a pretty horrible example in many attributes of life, right? I mean, he was an adulterer, he was a murderer. He was really a poor father who refused to discipline his son Absalom and deal with the problems and situations that were in his family. David was anything but a perfect man, but yet God himself who knows the beginning from the end? Who knows David's beginning and David's end? God says of David, he's a man after my own heart. Why? Because David will do what I want him to do. When he messes up, when he screws up, when he blows it, he'll repent. When he falls down, he'll get up. When he goes the wrong way, he'll turn around and go the right way. He may not be a perfect man, but he's an on-purpose man that will repent and return to the life that I've called him to live. And when I think about what it means to be a man of God and what it means to be a real man, I'm disqualified from being a perfect man, but I can be an on-purpose man. I can be a guy that's on purpose that when I do miss it, I can get up and do it again. And that when I do fall short of the glory of God, I can confess my sin and repent of my sin, and I can look at my family and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And I can get up and I can run the race with purpose. Why? Because I'm not a perfect man, but I can be an on-purpose man. Because that's the kind of man that God delights in. That's the kind of man that God says is a man after my own heart. So let's talk about a definition today of manhood. I borrowed this from our quest study. That's the kind way of saying I stole it. Let me give you a definition of manhood. A real man, four characteristics, rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects the greater reward, which is God's reward. A real man, right, a real man rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects the greater reward, which is God's reward. Now, why in the world, you might say, Pastor Keith, do we need a definition of manhood? Let me tell you why. Because your definition determines your direction, which determines your destination. See, if you have the wrong definition, and let me just say, there's really two two definitions of manhood. There's God's definition of manhood that calls you up, and there's the world's definition of manhood that calls you down. There's a definition of manhood that says live a low life, and there's a definition of manhood that says live this high life. And God is calling us to the high life. God is calling us up higher into the life that He has called us to live. And if you don't have the right definition of what it means to be a man, then you'll live your life in the wrong direction, and one day you'll end up in the wrong destination, and you'll look yourself in the mirror and say, how in the world did I become this man? How did I become the man that destroyed my family instead of built my family? How did I become the man that tore up everything I loved instead of built up everything I loved? How did I become the man that ended up so far away from God instead of close to God? How did I become that man? It's really simple. If you allow the world to define manhood, you'll live a low life of manhood. But if you allow God to define manhood, you'll live a high calling of what it means to be a real man. Have you ever thought about the definitions of manhood out there in our culture today? It's really crazy. We don't just always verbalize them, but among men anyway, there's kind of these these unwritten rules of what it means to be a man. And if you listen to the culture of manhood, it's crazy, right? The definitions of the world for a man go something like this. You're a man if you can drink more beer than the other man. I'm just telling you, there are a world of guys out there living by that code. I can put one more bag than you. I'm a man. You're a man if you can sleep with more women than everybody else sleeps with. You're a man if you can make more money than other men make. You're a man if you can drive a faster car than they drive. You're a man if you live in a bigger house than they live in. You're a man if you can beat up the other men. It sounds it sounds hilarious when we say it out loud, but do you realize there are millions of men living by that definition, and they're not just twenty years old; they're seventy years old. I've met some seventy-year-old men living by that definition of manhood. They're still trying to out-drink, out-sleep, out-beat, out-win, outrun the other guys and somehow think that they can be a man because they did these things better than the other men. And how many of you realize that's a low life? But God's called us to a high life. And I love what Romans chapter 2, because Romans chapter 2 lays such a beautiful picture out here. Look what it says in verse 7 and 8. It says, He, speaking of God, will give eternal life To those who keep on doing good. Think about that little phrase for a second. To those who keep on doing good. In order to keep on doing good, it sounds like I'm kind of on purpose, doesn't it? If I'm going to keep on doing good, I'm an on purpose kind of guy. I'm a guy that's pursuing a goal. I'm a guy that's defined some things, and I'm going to keep on doing good. And I've got to have the right definition, because if I don't have the right definition, instead of keeping on doing good, I'll keep on doing evil. And I'll keep on doing foolish, and I'll keep on doing rebellion, and I'll keep on doing sin. But if I can get the right definition of what it means to be a man, then I can keep on doing good. I can keep on pursuing the thing God has called me to pursue. And then then this is what he defines here. He qualifies again what it means to keep on doing good. Look what he says, seeking after the glory, the honor, and the immortality that God offers. God's man is a guy that's seeking and pursuing after the glory and the honor and the immortality that God offers. He's seeking the glory of God. He's seeking the honor that comes from God. He's seeking the immortal life that only Jesus Christ can and will give to those who believe in and follow Him. This is what it means to live the high calling, to be seeking after those things that God has called us to. And then he flips the coin. Look at verse 8. He says, but he, speaking again of God, will pour out his anger and his wrath on those who live for themselves. Here's the low life, guys. The high life is I'm seeking the honor and glory that comes from God. The low life is I'm living for myself. I refuse to obey the truth. I make up my own rules. I love when I hear guys say, well, you know what? I just make up my own rules. I thought, boy, I'd hate to live in your world. Why chart my own path? Well, that explains the wake of devastation and destruction that is behind you. God has already charted a path. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. There's a path. There's a plan. There's a will. And there's a way. And His name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. And look what he says, those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth, and instead live lives of wickedness. There's a high path, and there's a low life. And how you define what it means to be a man determines which path you take, because your definition determines your direction, which determines your destination. And if you want to end up in the place you want to end up, not only eternally and spiritually, but relationally, physically, and financially, then you and I had better check the definition of what we think it means to be a man. And we had better begin to qualify our lives according to the standard of God and not the ways of the world. So let's break down this definition. Let's look at these four characteristics of what it means to be a real man. A real man, number one, rejects passivity. Passivity is literally inactivity. It accepts what happens without an active response or resistance. A real man refuses to say nothing or do nothing. A real man rejects passivity. As you finish filling it I'm going to read Genesis 3 6 to you. We've been hanging out in Genesis 3 for the last few weeks. But it's the story of Adam and Eve, and Eve is being tempted. The Bible says, and the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Now look at this last part. And then she gave some to her husband. Look what it says. Where was he? He was where? He was where? He was with her. When the devil was deceiving her, when the devil was tempting her, when the devil was manipulating her, when the devil was lying to her, Adam was with her. I want to propose to you today that the first sin before the original sin was passivity. Here's a man with his wife. She took the fruit and ate it, and she gave it to her husband who was with her. He didn't say nothing, he didn't do nothing, he was passive, and his passivity opened the door for the enemy to steal, kill, and destroy. Let me talk about passivity for just a minute, because this is a real deal with us as guys, and let me tell you why. Let let me share some truth with you. There's a great study, if you've never done it, called Love and Respect, and it's about marriage. And in that study, one of the greatest statements made is is that the gentleman talks about the heart of a man and the heart of a woman, and he makes this statement about men that is so true. He says, on the heart of a man, God has written an honor code, an honor code. There's this honor code written on the heart of a man. And this is how it kind of plays out. If two guys that are kind of friends get in a disagreement or an argument— It'll get heated. I mean, it might get really, really, really bad. And they will escalate to a point that they recognize if we go any further, we're going to cross some lines we don't want to cross. And so you know what will happen? Honor is written on that man's heart. And so out of honor and not wanting to cross the line that they don't want to cross, that man will back up. Right? He'll back away. And we've seen it, right? Just imagine when you remember, guys, you remember back when you were in school? Right, when when I was in high school, we used to have the the handball court. That's where all the fights were. It would never fail. Guys are going to show up, they're going to fight at the handball court, and they'd sit there and push on each other and call each other names and shove each other, and finally one of them's like, I'm not even messing with you. Think about it, men with your wives. When a fight escalates in the family, husband and wife are in dispute, it'll build, it'll build, it'll build. And when the man feels like it's about to cross a line where he's about to do something or say something that he knows he shouldn't do or say, you know what that man will do because of honor? He will draw back. He'll walk away. He might even get in the car and leave. And the woman looks at that as contempt. How unloving, how uncaring, how cruel, and how unkind. Why? Because a woman, when she's in the heat of conflict, she continues to confront you because she wants to connect with you because we got to work through this and we got to figure it out and we got to get to the other side. So don't you dare walk away from me because we got to resolve this. And I'm glad Kelly's not here to see me mimic her there, but uh, all you Facebook people don't tell her, so but there's an honor written on the heart of a man and he backs up because he knows he's about to cross the line he don't want to cross. Women misinterpret that. Most guys understand it. Guys will get right here about to blow up. They'll walk away. Tomorrow they'll be best friends. Girls will get right here walk away. Three weeks later they're still thinking about it. But here's the problem, guys. Here's the challenge. So there's honor on our hearts, and so we back away. There's conflict in our families. We get to a point, it's out of control. We back away. And here's the problem. There's nothing wrong with backing away. That's honorable. But if you never re-engage, that's passive. Because as I just said, in five minutes you've already forgot about it. But three weeks later, your wife is still thinking, what are we going to do about that problem? He never said anything. He never did anything. We never reengaged. We never talked about it anymore. He just acted like it didn't exist. And I am convinced, hear me folks, I am convinced that one of the reasons that so many men, so many women end up taking the leadership role in our families is because guys who start out in honor become passive and we never reengage, right? Once we calm down, the reality is, is if we escalated to this point, then there's a real problem. I back away because I don't want to say or do things I shouldn't do, but I can't stay backed away. It's honorable to back away, but it is godly to re-engage when we're all calm and say, hey, let's talk about now what we were dealing with yesterday. Let's talk about that thing that got out of control. Let's talk about the kids. Let's talk about the money. Let's talk about the problem. Let's talk about the finances. Let's talk about this situation. Because hear me, guys, if you don't talk about it, if you don't re-engage, It ends up putting your wife in a place where she thinks he's not going to do anything. And many times we don't. We allow what was supposed to be honor to de-escalate become passivity which emasculates us and keeps us from being the men God has called us to be. So we have to be wise enough To understand, I've got to reject passivity. And yes, I can step away, but I have to re engage because if there was a problem big enough for us to get to that point, then there's a problem that we need to talk about, and there's a problem that we need to work through, and there's a problem that we need to address. And we can't just act like it didn't happen because it did happen, and the next time it escalates, it may get ugly. Let me say it another way rejecting passivity means that we fight for our families. It means that we fight for our family. I heard a guy make this this statement. He said, I believe the job description of every Christian is this. He said, I believe every Christian is supposed to stand at the gates of hell and redirect traffic. (laughs) We ought to fight for our families. Let me just say this to you today. If my kids are going to go to hell, they're going to have to go to hell over my dead body. If my family's going to go to Hell, it's going to have to go to Hell over my dead body. It's going to have to go to Hell around me. It's going to have to go to Hell over me. It's going to have to go to Hell around me because I'm going to stand at the gates of Hell, and I'm going to speak up, and I'm going to stand up, and I'm going to be a voice of truth and righteousness, and I'm going to say, hey, you may still reject me, but you're going to have to go through me before you go to Hell. That's what it means to reject passivity. And I'm going to just, I'm going to step out on a limb right here. I'm going to get on a ledge, and so y'all can just forgive me if you need to forgive me if I say this, okay? I'm going to say it so y'all can forgive me if you need to forgive me. If you agree with it, you can agree with it. And if you don't, you can say, oh, bless his heart, because we're in the South. You can do that, right? (laughs) I believe it is better for you to say and do the wrong thing. Than it is for you to say and do nothing. I can redirect the wrong thing, but you can't do anything with nothing. I can say, "Hey, man, I, I got that was wrong. We got to do this, man. That wasn't exactly right. We got to change this." But if I don't do anything, there's no adjusting nothing. I can adjust the wrong thing. Now again, y'all don't mishear me. I'm not saying go make wrong decisions. Y'all hear me? I'm not saying be foolish. I'm not saying be rash. I'm not saying make decisions out of your anger or your frustration. I'm just saying for us as men, it would be better that we made a wrong decision than that we make no decision. Because the tendency of our carnal flesh from our forefather Adam is that we will be passive and we'll stand right there silently by and watch our family go to hell. Let me give you a little pet peeve of mine. I'm just going to throw it out here. It it grieves my heart when I hear fathers say, well, they're 16 years old. What am I going to do with them? What What do you mean, what are you going to do with them? They're eating your food, they're sleeping in your house, they're drinking your water, they're using your toilet, they're sucking up your internet, they're using your gas in their, in your car. What do you mean? They're talking on your cell phone, right? That bed is your bed, that door on their bedroom is your door on their bedroom. Don't you? What do you mean, what are you going to do? Fight for your family. Fight for your family. I've never met a parent of a drug addict who said, you know what, I, I just went too far to try to stop them from doing drugs. Never met one. I've never met the parent of a teenage pregnant girl who said, oh, I tell you what, boy, I regret it. I, I went too hard to try to keep her pure. Never met one. I've met hundreds They said, I didn't do enough. I wish I would have said something. I wish I would have done something. I wish I would have. I'm not saying our kids are going to always respond appropriately. They don't. But if they're going to go to hell, they're going to go to hell through us. They're not going to go to hell without us because we were silent and said nothing. Amen? We resist passivity. Everybody still with me? Y'all good? I preached all my time on that one point. I hope it was good. Second point, y'all bear with me. A real man accepts responsibility. A real man refuses to blame others and make excuses for his life because responsibility activates your authority. A real man accepts responsibility for his choices, his decisions, and his actions and his attitude, right? You have to be a real man. Real men, guys, we accept responsibility. How many of you understand that that's not just a man thing, that's a maturity thing? We always told our kids they would, they would turn 16, they would turn 17, and they'd say, well now that I'm older, shouldn't I get more privileges? And we said, absolutely not, because maturity is not measured by your age, maturity is measured by your responsibility. When you prove that you're responsible enough to have the things you're wanting to have, it don't matter if you're 16 or 26. We'll give them to you. But until you prove that you're mature enough to handle the things you're asking for, we're not going to give them to you because there's no magic age for maturity. I know some 50-year-old men that need to grow up. And so understand this, responsibility, real men accept responsibility for their lives, their actions, their decisions, their choices, and we stop blaming people. Genesis 3, let's look at Adam again. Adam, the first man, is a horrible example of what a real man should be. Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, God has just asked Adam, did you eat eat the fruit from the tree that I told you not to eat? You know what Adam says? Look what it says. And the man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Adam blamed two people. He blamed his wife, and he blamed God. It was the woman you gave me, God. If you want to get really serious about this, Lord, it's really your fault, God. If you hadn't gave her to me, I mean, she's so pretty, I mean, who could resist her? Come on, God, it's your fault. We live in a blame and an excuse culture. It sickens my heart. It sickens my heart. It sickens my heart. I, I, I can't stand this. Is just, I'll, I'll just share a little something here. I go, I go, I watch, I, I've, I've learned to, to watch sports. I used to never watch it. God told me, if you want to reach men, watch sports. So I started watching sports. And I watch sports with these guys, and they whine and they complain the whole game about the refs. I just, I'm sitting over there eating my pizza thinking I'm going to throw up. Bunch of crybabies. Well, them refs, them refs, them refs. Come on. You won or you lost based on your ability on the field. Come on. Yeah, maybe you made a bad call. Maybe you made 20 calls. But if you hadn't missed those 15 free throws, you'd have won anyway. Come on. But you know what? We live in an excuse-minded society, and everybody's blaming everybody, and everybody's excusing themselves from everybody else. So let me just tell you why this is so important that you don't do that, because responsibility activates your authority. I'm just going to pick on Junior right here. Junior's on the front row, so I'll pick on Junior. What if I said, what if I said, well, you know what? I would have been happy. I would be happy, but Junior. You know, but Junior, Junior did this, and Junior did that, and I would really be, I mean, I'd be having a great Father's Day, but Junior, the moment, the moment I do that, the moment I blame him, the moment I shift the responsibility of my happiness to Junior is the moment I give him authority over my joy. See, whoever gets the responsibility gets the authority. And if you're blaming the world because you're not happy, because you're not blessed, because you're not prosperous, because you're not doing this, because you don't have this, because nobody will do this, let me just tell you something. Every person that you blame, you've given them the authority over your life. And I'm just going to tell you what, I'm going to be happy. I don't care what Junior does. Amen? Because this is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. My joy, my peace, my happiness, my prosperity, my physical, financial, spiritual, relational lives are the fruit of my decisions. It has nothing to do with you. And the moment I take responsibility for that, guess what happens? I start enjoying my life. Because I start realizing the things I've been griping about for the last 20 years, I can actually change. I can change. Because the moment you take responsibility, it activates the authority that God has given you to choose you this day, whom you will serve. Y'all still with me? The third characteristic a real man leads courageously. A real man does what is right even when it hurts, he sacrifices himself for those he has been called to lead. Two things I know every man wants. Every man wants to be respected, and every man wants his family to follow his lead. Every man wants to be respected, and every man wants his family to follow his lead. This point right here tells us how to make that happen. You want to know how to gain respect, and you want to know how to get your family to follow your lead, not just your family. People will line up behind you to follow you. Because what we're talking about here isn't just true for fathers and husbands and men. It's true for any person in any area, in any arena of life. This is how it works. Look what the Bible says. John chapter 10, I love Jesus. In the Old Testament, we had Adam, the first man who screwed it up, messed it up. In the New Testament, we got God's man, amen? Jesus, the perfect example of what it means to be an on-purpose man. Look what Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and and they know me. And just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. Look at verse 17, the Father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me, I sacrifice it voluntarily. And the last part of this verse goes back to our last point. Look what he says, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and I have the authority to take it up again for this is what my Father has commanded me. Jesus said I sacrifice my life for my sheep and I sacrifice my life voluntarily. Nobody's making me do it. What does it mean to lead courageously? It means that you sacrifice yourself for the people you've been called to lead. It means you're willing to do without so they can have extra. It means you're willing to go the extra mile to pave the way for the people that are in your family. Let me tell you something, man. You want your wife and you want your kids to respect you and follow you, then become the person in your family that makes the greatest sacrifice. Become the person in your family that makes the greatest sacrifice. And when you become the person in your family that makes the greatest sacrifice, you know what will happen? Your wives and your kids, they'll respect you, and they'll follow you wherever you go. They'll line up to follow you. Think about it on your job. We've all had managers and supervisors and bosses who sacrificed everybody else for their promotion, and they're good. And then we've all had managers, supervisors, and employers who sacrificed of themselves to make the company good. And you know what I know about that latter part? People will come in early, and people will work late, and they'll even work for free to support that person that sacrifices for the whole. But the person that sacrifices everybody else for them, (laughs) they're not going to give you a, a minute of extra anything. Because you're a user and a taker, and nobody respects a user, and nobody follows a taker. But if you sacrifice of yourself to meet, to lead the other, the people you've been called to lead, people will line up behind you to follow you wherever you go. Lead courageously. The fourth characteristic is that a real man expects the greater reward, which is God's reward. A real man lives to please the one who died for him. He lives for the eternal and not the temporal. He lives for the eternal, not the temporal. I love Philippians 3. Look what it says. I do not mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on. I'm on purpose. I press on to reach the the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, I am pressing on and reaching forward to the high calling of God that is in Christ Jesus. I want to pursue that heavenly prize. Think about it. Jesus said it like this. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Your temporal life is where you lay up eternal treasure. What you're going to enjoy forever in heaven is determined by what you do temporally on earth. My eternal reward is determined by my temporal life. How I live today determines the eternal reward I will not only receive, but get to enjoy forever and ever and ever. What would happen if you got up tomorrow morning, guys, and you went to work, and instead of working for money, What if you decided you were going to work for the glory of God? Instead of working for a house, mortgage payment, or a boat, or a car, or a hunting trip, or a fishing trip, what if you started working and living every day of your life for the glory of God? What if you went tomorrow morning and worked for the glory of the Lord? What does that mean? Well, it means you go to work, you get there on time, you're not late, you're the best worker they got, you work with integrity and character, you're a hard worker, you're dedicated, you're committed, but you do all that you do unto the Lord and not unto men. I'm just going to tell you, if you're working for money, I feel sorry for you. What a horrible way to live your life. To know that I'm going to get up every day and go to work for money? Why would I want to work for money when I can work for God? Well, that's easy. You're a pastor. No, 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 I'm not talking about that. When I was laying carpet, I was working for God. Working for God is not about your position. It is about the posture of your heart. What are you pursuing? Are you living that high life for the high calling? Are you doing everything that you do under the glory of God, under the glory and honor of His name? Are you doing it just for a paycheck, just to pay the bills, just to get by? And the reason so many people are bored with their lives is because they're working for money. What if you begin to work for God? What if you begin to work for the eternal? What if you looked at every ordinary moment of every day? I want to say it like this. Every ordinary moment has eternal potential. Loving your kids, tucking them in at night, praying over them, playing with them, changing their diapers, loving your wife, mowing the grass, changing the oil, taking out the garbage, All those exciting things that we do, every single one of them, if the posture of your heart is right, it has the potential to produce an eternal reward. And here's the kicker (laughs) you got to do it anyway. Right? Tomorrow you still got to go to work, you still got to take out the garbage. You still gotta deal with the babies, you still gotta tuck them in, you still gotta give them baths, you still gotta do, you still gotta do it. So why not do it under the Lord with an eternal perspective and lay up treasure in heaven instead of doing it for a temporal reward and just to get through another day? All of a sudden your world would shift and your life would change. Because you begin to live for something bigger than yourself. Last point right here it is. A real man isn't a perfect man. He's an on-purpose man, and he's a man that refuses to live life alone. In Genesis 2.18, God says it's not good for the man to be alone. He was specifically speaking of Adam and Eve and marriage and joining them together. But how many of you understand, not only do men need our wives, but how many you know that men need men? If you had not figured that out yet, let me tell it to you again today. Men need men. Everybody watching online, men need men. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Years ago, the Lord told me this. He said, Keith, there are three groups of men you always need in your life. Three groups of men. Here they are. He said, Keith, you need men that are in front of you. You need men that are in front of you. You need men that are beside you. And you need men that are behind you. You need men that are in front of you, fathers, leaders, mentors, mentors. You need men that are in front of you. Why? Because this is what's exciting about having men that are in front of you. They inspire you to do more. Because you see that if they can do it, you can do it. And here's what's exciting about having a man in front of you. When you have a man in front of you, there's somebody above you that can help you climb the mountain. How many know that once you go up the mountain, you can reach back and pull somebody up? We need men that are ahead of us because nobody can climb this life alone. You will never be the man God's called you to be by yourself. It won't happen. Iron sharpens iron. We need men in front of us that are inspiring us and calling us up higher. We need men beside us. Why? Because we need brothers in the faith. I've I've been running over the last year, and I'm a poor excuse for a runner, but this is what I know. When I run by myself, I set my own pace. But when I run with somebody else, I want to beat them, right? I want to beat them. I want to run faster than that fifth grade little girl, (laughs) and it's hard. See when you got somebody beside you, it compels you to push yourself. Brothers make brothers run harder. And then here's the good news. You need somebody behind you. I believe this is really the missing link for most men. You need spiritual sons. You need people that are behind you. If you're here today and you're a parent, you know what you know about being a parent? (laughs) You grew up more than your kids ever thought about it. (laughs) When you brought that baby home, all of a sudden that began your maturity process. You had to grow up. Because now there was somebody counting on you. There was somebody looking to you. There was somebody needing you somebody that you had to feed, and somebody that you had to change, and somebody that you had to care for, somebody that you had to provide for, and the fact that you had a child now demanded that you grow up. Most men plateau in their spiritual life because they might have men in front of them, and they might have men beside them, but most men never reach back and help other men. That's discipleship. When Jesus gave us the great commission going to all the world and make disciples, He wasn't giving us a great idea. He was actually giving us the spiritual formula for maturity. If you want to live an abundant life, then help somebody else grow, because this is what we know, right? Somebody that's in front of me can help me up the mountain, and once somebody helps me up the mountain, I can help somebody else up the mountain, and every time I help somebody else up the mountain, I go up a little higher. Today, just as soon as service is over, out the back doors to my left, we have our Band of Brothers booth. If you're here today, and you're a man, and you're not connected to our men's ministry, you need to stop by that booth today, because real men refuse to live their lives alone. We need each other. I want you just to bow your heads for just a moment. Father, I thank you today for mighty men. God, we're not perfect men, none of us, Lord. God, I thank you right now. I just pray that in spite of everything that we've heard today, Lord, we would hear that most clearly. God, we've all failed and we've all come short of the glory of God. And we stand here today admitting that we need you. God, we confess that without you, we're not even good men. We're pretty wicked men without you. But God, I thank you that today by the Holy Spirit, we can be on purpose men. We can be men after your own heart who will do the things you've called us to do, not perfectly, but purposely. We can fall down and get up, and we can fall down and get up because a righteous man keeps getting up. And so, Lord, today I pray for every man here today. I pray that there would be a a Holy Ghost get up on the inside. There'd be something stirred up in us today that would say, get up, come on, get up. Rise up, rise up. Come up higher, come up higher, come up higher. And Lord, that we would not be discouraged, but we would be encouraged and inspired to climb the mountain because we're not climbing alone. So connect us together as a band of brothers today and ignite our hearts with the honor and the glory and the immortality that only comes from you. We ask it today in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Let's give the Lord a round of praise today. Amen.